0: Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Article 230, Service Conductors. So, it's time to focus on installation requirements for service conductors. If you're just tuning in midstream, the two previous episodes talked about Article 230 in general, with a focus on definitions that are pertinent to this article, and the last episode focused on the equipment side of things. Now, because service conductors are not really electrically protected, we treat them with an abundance of caution. We give them a lot of physical protection but they have not been electrically protected yet. Overcurrent protection, grounding, and bonding, that hasn't happened to them yet. And so for this reason, 230.3 says, service conductors for one structure can't pass through the interior of another. We can't put unprotected conductors through one building to feed another. Now, to identify a service conductor, we first have to determine Whether the distribution point that we're working with is on the line side, that is the service side, or the load side, or the premises side, of a disconnect. Conductors and equipment on the load side, or the downstream side of a a service breaker or a set of fuses, uh, they're not service conductors. These are feeders, or perhaps even branch circuits. They're covered by Articles 215, 225, and 210 not Article 230. And so we're looking at the conductors that are ahead of the first overcurrent device between the utility and us. And to understand where service conductors begin, it's important to know what the service point is. That is, it's the point of connection between the premises wiring and the utility supply conductors. Article 100 tells us that service conductors run from the service point to the service disconnecting means. That is, the service equipment, not the meter. It's where the first breaker or set of fuses lives. And we have to keep in mind that service entrance conductors may be either overhead with a service drop or underground with a service lateral. Then the question comes up, what constitutes an outside conductor? The requirements that we have in Article 230 for a conductor that is inside differs from those that are on the outside. And the problem here is that the distinction between inside and outside, as defined in the NEC, might be different than we might think of in our heads. It might not fit the ideas that we have when it comes to what we would consider inside and outside of the building envelope. In other words, a conductor might physically be inside of the building's footprint, but be considered outside by the code. How is that? Well, here's how the NEC answers. In 230.6, it says, a conductor is considered to be outside of a building when installed under at least two inches of concrete beneath a structure, or within a structure in a raceway that is encased in at least two inches of concrete or brick, or in a vault that meets the construction requirements of Article 450, Part 3. It's a transformer vault. Or in a conduit under not less than 18 inches of Earth beneath a structure. And just a side note, conduit is a specific type of raceway. If the name of the article contains the word conduit, then that's a conduit. EMT, for example, is not a conduit. That's electrical metallic tubing. Tubing is not a conduit. It is a raceway but not a conduit. So it has to be in conduit under not less than 18 inches of earth beneath a structure. We also find a requirement there that says, if moisture could enter through an underground raceway and come in contact with live parts, the raceway must be sealed or plugged. 300.5G give us some additional direction there. An example would be service equipment located at the bottom of a hill with underground service laterals that are supplied from the top of the hill. You have to remember that usually we're not playing plumber. Our underground conduits tend to be porous at times. The joints are porous. It doesn't matter how much blue glue we use with the PVC, or if it's threaded conduit, we certainly wouldn't be putting pipe dope or or Teflon tape or anything like that on there because we need it to be electrically continuous. We're not plumbers. We're not there to keep the water out in terms of our raceway systems. And so where we have the ability for moisture to enter, we have to provide a sealing method. And the sealing method can be duct seal. It can be various types of uh, uh, sealing compounds. There are several companies out there that make a silicon-like product that can be used, but it is such that it doesn't bond to the raceway or to the cables or conductors. It's kind of like a a plug, kind of like a cork and it works really, really well. On that note too, if we have something that comes in overhead, perhaps a uh, a raceway that comes along the side of the house into an LB and then goes into a panel. The same rule applies there, and in many jurisdictions, the inspector will look for a weep hole perhaps in the LB, something where we've followed the direction to make sure that raceways that enter a structure are arranged to drain and then where it penetrates the building envelope that we've got some duct seal in there. Next we want to talk about separation. 230.7 tells us that we cannot install service conductors in the same raceway or cable as feeder or branch circuit conductors. And The reason for that is if something were to go awry, something were to uh, fail in terms of insulation, Overcurrent protection for the feeder or branch circuit would be bypassed. The service conductor could energize it, and a fault could occur between the service and non-service conductors. Now, the rule isn't bulletproof. In other words, there are places where the two could meet. In a service panel, for example, we have both unprotected and protected conductors in the same service enclosure. The rule does not prohibit the mixing of service feeder and branch circuit conductors in the same service equipment enclosure. It's talking about raceways and cables. And also, this requirement might give rise to a misconception. I've heard it said that you can't install line and load conductors in the same raceway. Well, that is true if we're talking about line being the service conductor and load being a feeder. But those are not the right terms to use here. What if the line was a feeder and the load was a branch circuit? Well, both of those are protected conductors. Both of those can be in the same raceway. Now, it's true, we can't install service conductors in a raceway with feeder or branch circuit conductors. But we can install line and load conductors for feeders and branch circuits in the same raceway or enclosure. Uh, You see, both sides are already protected. And if there's a fault that occurs, we have a breaker or a fuse that will open up. How about clearances to these unprotected conductors? Well, 230.24b gives us some uh, some direction, as does 230.9. We'll start with 230.9. And here we read about overhead service conductors that have to maintain a clearance of three feet from doors, porches, balconies, ladders, stairs, fire escapes, windows, hatches, anything that we could open up and reach out of. So a window that can't be opened up doesn't apply here. Fixed portions of a slider don't apply here. But any kind of a, a, a an opening that we could reach out and be able to touch service conductors, that's not service cable, that's not a service raceway, individual conductors, we have to have a three-foot clearance around that. And then 230.24 says that we must maintain a vertical clearance of at least 10 feet above surfaces that uh, people might be able to walk out onto and reach overhead conductors. There's also prohibition in 230.10 that uh, gives us the idea that um, you shouldn't use a tree to put a service on. That might seem kind of funny. Basically it says vegetation is prohibited to support overhead spans. But at one time We did have permission to, in many cases, take a live standing tree, limit up to the point where a service drop would come in, and put a temporary service on it. Now, that's many, many years ago, but when that went and left the code, we had to have some language in there that gave us a prohibition. So overhead spans may not be put to live vegetation. We also have some very specific rules for the overhead service drop conductors. Now, how is that different from a service conductor? Again, the definitions help us out. But a service drop conductor is a conductor that runs from the final overhead span, perhaps from the pole, to your service entrance, to the strike knob on the side of the house or structure. And there we also have some accessibility issues. So again, those are in 230.24, and we have to keep some clearances in mind. Again building openings 230.9 and also we have to consider 680.8 that's swimming pools. Swimming pools have a a much greater clearance requirement for overhead drops than we generally find in article 230. So service drop conductors that run over roofs must maintain a minimum clearance of 8 feet above the roof surface for a minimum distance of three feet in all directions from the edge of the roof. That's the general rule. And as many general rules we have in the code, we have many, many, many more exceptions. And this is, uh, again, one of those places. So if nothing is given to you in the test question, it says, hey, what's the clearance for service conductors above a roof? The answer is eight feet. Now, normally we try to apply one of these exceptions, so it's rare that we need those eight feet. Four exceptions exist. So the area above a roof that has pedestrian or vehicular traffic, we would just consider those to be at grade level. So it would be 10 feet or, or greater. Uh, I've had a service installation that was above a, a parking garage that had a couple of stories on it, and so the top level was subject to car traffic. And there we had just treat it like normal grade, normal normal ground. For 122.08 volt or 122.40 volt service drop conductors, overhead conductor clearances from the roof can be reduced to three feet. If it's a sloped roof and we've got a pitch of four and 12. So four inches of rise for every 12 inches length. So four and 12 pitch, we can drop that from eight feet down to three feet. Now, most often we're going to shoot for this exception, and that is, again, 122.08 or 122.40 volt service drop conductors, that if we can come in from the side and not overhang the roof by very much, we're allowed to be no more than four feet in from the ridge of the roof, and the service drop conductor may pass over no more than six feet of roof line. If we can accomplish that coming into the side of the roof, we can drop the lowest point of our service drop conductors and drip loop to 18 inches. All right, well, what if we're not over a roof? What if we're over final grade? 230.24b gives us four possibilities. If we're over finished grade sideways uh, sidewalks or platforms, projections, that are accessible only to pedestrians, and our voltage does not exceed 150 volts to ground, so that's a 122.8 service or 122-40 volt service, our code permits us to be as little as 10 feet. There's no vehicular traffic here. It's pedestrian traffic only. That's what our code permits. Just a side note, the National Electrical Safety Code, which most utilities use, does not have the 10-foot requirement. And so if we're basing our strike knob height off of our electrical code, the utility doesn't use that. Their code starts at 12 feet. So be be aware of that. Always know what your utility is willing to connect to. 12 feet is also a value that's given here. 12 feet above residential property and driveways and commercial areas that are not subject to truck traffic for 12208, 12240. Or 277 480 volt circuits. However, if our voltage to ground exceeds 300 volts, so perhaps we've got a 600 volt service, then we would have to raise that up to 15 feet. And then we get to the last one, which is 18 feet. It's 18 feet over public streets, alleys, roads, parking areas subject to truck traffic, driveways on other than residential property, and other areas traversed by vehicles. And so there's a couple of other areas that aren't mentioned here, but we could easily picture, for example, if we're near an easement for a farmer's field, if he's got to get a combine or a large piece of equipment in there, it's going to be 18 feet minimum. The attachment for these overhead conductors has to be located at least 10 feet above finished grade. And has to be located so that the minimum service conductor clearance that we just talked about can be maintained. That means the lowest part of the drip loop, not just the strike point, has to never be less than 10 feet above the finished grade. Uh, if we're over a roof line, there we've got the, uh, the roof dimensions that we have to worry about. But if we're over just bare ground, no less than 10 feet for the bottom of the drip loop. So the point of attachment might need to be raised to provide the clearances from building openings and clearances for the drip loop to be able to be clear of all of these things. Multiconductor cables that are used for service drops, and the code permits them. In many jurisdictions, we can't use them anymore because of uh, local restrictions, uh, such as SE cable, and partly because they're hard to physically protect. But multiconductor cables that are used for service drops have to be attached to structures by fittings identified for use with these conductors. 230.27 tells us that. Also, open conductors have to be attached to fittings identified for such use. And sometimes we still have these kinds of installations in farm loops. They have to be identified for use with service conductors or be non-combustible, non-absorbent insulators that are securely attached to the structure. We also have to have adequate mechanical strength for the support. If the service mass is used as an overhead support, uh, perhaps we need to brace or guy to support it. That is automatically true if we exceed a service drop over 100 feet, um, or the service point connection is more than 24 inches above the last point of support. But other than that, our code doesn't say very much. It doesn't give a minimum size for the rigid metal conduit to be used either, or the type of strike knob or strike plate to utilize. And so here you really want to look at what the electric utility contains as specific requirements for the service mast. Some local building codes or utilities require a minimum 2-inch rigid metal conduit for the service mast. And also there's a note that only electrical utility service drop conductors can be attached to the service mast. 810.12, 820.44 also specify that aerial cables for radio, TV, cable TV cannot be attached to the electrical service mast. 810.12 prohibits an antenna from being attached to the service mast. Communications cables, such as for telephone and broadband, cannot be attached to the service mast. 800.133 and 830.133 in the 2017 code give us that direction. Now, I've worked as an inspector in the past, and I have no idea how to write a correction to utilities that utilize that. They are, in many states, protected from uh, any kind of um, electrical inspection by operating under a utility exemption. And so, uh, in many areas, you'll see that the cable TV or the telephone actually attaches to the service mast but our code actually prohibits that. What if the wiring comes in underground? Well, we have an underground lateral in that case. And if the underground lateral is installed by the electric utility, again, they follow the National Electrical Safety Code, not the NEC. It really depends on where your service point is. In my local area that I work in, there are several different utilities. In a residential setting, some will pull their underground conductors, right up into the meter base. And you walk across the street, build the same house, different utility. And they say, hey, have you seen the rates at the other utility charges? We're so much cheaper. Oh, by the way, we don't pull into anything. We're going to stop right at the pole, put a handhole there, put a little box there, and run your service conductors to that box. We'll hook up right in there. We'll make an underground splice in there. And so you have to talk to your utility to find out where the service point is. If the service point is not at the structure, that means that those conductors are now under the control of the electrician and the National Electrical Code. And there, 300.5 applies. But if it's under the utility's jurisdiction, the NESC applies. Even if perhaps we're putting in the conduit for the utility, and quite often they're going to want a deeper depth than our code would require. So it's not unusual that they'll want a three foot depth for their raceway to come up to the meter. It's their call. They are able to uh, say yay or nay when it comes to wanting to hook you up. So that's what applies. The service entrance conductors that enter, whether it's a service drop or a lateral, can only supply one set of service entrance conductors. So I said that kind of funny, but Each service drop or lateral can only supply one set. There are some exceptions. For example, at times the utility will provide a parallel set, and so service entrance conductors can be spliced or tapped, and they can be paralleled. And the NEC allows this, but maintenance conditions often make some of these methods inadvisable. Remember, the NEC doesn't really tell you how to design an optimal installation. If your service is 600 volts or less, you can use any of the 16 wiring methods that are listed in 230.43 as a way to get power into your building. And again, local jurisdictions often restrict some of these wiring methods. Just as an example, Washington State does not permit EMT or SE cable inside of the structure without electrical protection. They're fine for feeders inside the structure, but they're not fine for service conductor inside of the structure. And there are also some things that are not really well defined in the code book. For example, what kind of raceway may we use on the outside of the structure? Well, it depends on whether or not the HJ determines that the raceway is not subject to physical damage. If it's not, we can use Schedule 40, non-metallic conduit, PVC. Otherwise, if it is subject to physical damage, and in many cases outside it might be, we have a choice of rigid metal conduit, IMC, rigid non-metallic conduit Schedule 80, which is identified for uh, areas that are subject to physical damage, electrical metallic tubing, and again, here you want to do that with a grain of salt, because if it's at grade level, that's not really the best, uh, best material. If it's on the structure above grade level, it may be okay, or whatever other means are acceptable to the authority having jurisdiction. And so in some cases, there are installations where to protect a service from physical damage or the service conductors, you might even have to mechanically protect the raceways. I remember one time, uh, another inspector and myself, we did a final on a building that um, It was a place of assembly, had the service on the back side of the building, raceways coming up, switchgear on the back of the structure. And the way that the handicap access parking was designed, there was no curb stop. In other words, you could drive your car directly into the switchgear and into the Schedule 80 PVC conduits that came up. And so the general contractor decided to install some bollards at a correct distance to prevent physical damage, and that was something that as, as the HJ we hardly agreed to because that was a good solution. So when it comes to service conductors, we have to just remember that looks can be deceiving. If we're working on an installation that was installed many years ago, we have to look carefully. What appears to be a feeder might actually be a service conductor, or the other way around. At one time, we were permitted to run feeders to a second structure and not carry an equipment grounding conductor and treat the second structure as a service, or pretend that it was. But it had overcurrent protection on the upstream side. So how can we be sure that we're applying the right requirements? Well, take a look at the definitions. The way the NEC is arranged, there's good sense in that. The definitions are located up front in Article 100. You want to look at the definition for a service and service conductor versus a feeder conductor. So if we're, installation, if we're faced with an installation where it's questionable, just because of the location that we're at and we're trying to figure out what do we have in our hands here, take a look at the definitions of what a service consists of. Find the first overcurrent device that protects the conductors between the serving utility and the rest of the wiring. The line side of that will be service conductor. That's between the transformer from the utility and your first disconnecting means. On the other side of that, the load side of that, those are feeders or branch circuits. So on the line side of that, those are your service conductors. Well, thanks for listening to this episode covering the service conductor requirements of Article 230. Next time we will develop the topic a little further. We're going to look at specific minimum size requirements for various service types, as well as we will touch on the location and purpose of the main bonding jumper and the grounding points at the service location. If you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes. Until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.